Welcome to Rex Factor. This week, Victoria's Prime Ministers. With your hosts, Graham Duke and Ali Hood. Hello! Guess who's back? <laughs> Welcome to Rex bringing all the kings and queens of England from Alfred the Great to Elizabeth II, except this time it's largely, again, the Prime Ministers. And if last week's anything to go by, her whiny, whiny attitude to them. Last time when we left it, Lord Palmerston just won another election, but then died in office in 1865. Yeah. So, somebody else is going to have to take over, a new man, some young blood... Bringing something fresh to the proceedings. Lord John Russell, again. Lord John Russell, who was originally Prime Minister from 1846 to 1852. That's quite a while ago, isn't it? 13 years ago, yeah. and now he's Prime Minister again. Mm. Um, as Victoria said, I feel for poor Lord Russell. To begin his age afresh after 13 years as Prime Minister is very trying. Yeah, yeah. I mean, why, why, why go back? He's the senior man in the party, and it's very unusual to have been Prime Minister that long ago. Yeah. And then to come back again. But then, you know, he and Palmerston were by far the two most senior men. 1865 is when he becomes Prime Minister, but 1866, the next year, is when he tries to sort of achieve his life's ambition, because he'd been one of the key people with the 1832 Reform Act. Oh, yeah. And he'd kind of wanted to get it back, to have another one. So he tried to do it in 1860, but hadn't had enough support. Um, but this time, he's Prime Minister got a Liberal government behind him, he's determined to do it. Because the Conservatives had said that 1832 was was it. That's it. And so we've now got this new... and it, That was versus the Whigs. Yeah. And now we're the Liberals, and they're saying we're going to go back for some more reform. More reform. Good. Right. More people Battle. to be able to vote, all this sort of stuff. Yeah. So it's going to be difficult, so he needs to get Victoria on board. So he persuades her to open Parliament, the House of Commons, which, if we recall, after Albert had died in 1861, she hadn't done. Mm-hmm. So this time he's persuaded her to Why get Why does that involved. make a difference? Um, again, it's like with the bedchamber crisis, I suppose. It's just the Queen showing some support for her government. Right. Um, so, again, I'm still struggling just, with this. It's I just know. a little sign. I've got, to, I've got to re-listen to last week. It's, we're not quite in the 20th century, I suppose, until the end of the episode when we are in the 20th century. <laughs> <laughs> we're still not quite in that modern bit of government. That's some, one of the ways in which I think Victoria will suffer, that we see so much that we recognise, that we'll judge her entirely on modern standards. But we've got to remember that we have Good still point. been yeah. in that Georgian yeah. world not that long ago. So um, she full-heartedly throws her support behind him. Hey! To enable the Queen to go through what she can only compare to an execution, <laughs> it is of importance to keep the thought of it as much from her mind as possible. The Queen must say that she does feel very bitterly the want of feeling of those who ask the Queen to go to open Parliament. She will do it this time, as she has promised it, but she owns she hardly knows how she will go through with it. Overreaction much? It's like an execution. <laughs> That's unbelievable. Oh, my Lord above. But she does it. She does do it. She does it. Does she lose her head? Was she right? She, she gets through it. Okay. She doesn't get executed. However, uh, Lord John Russell is in the Lords, mm. as you'd expect, um, and his opposite number, the Earl of Derby, is also in the Lords. So, actually, the bill in the House of Commons isn't being run by them. It's being run by their sort of... Weird. So the Prime Minister's sitting in the Lords and his opposite number's in the Lords, because yeah. usually, today, they're in the Commons, yeah. they pass things up to the Lords. Mm. 
So how do, how is that? Well, basically, they have sort of leaders in the Commons, in effect. So in both parties' cases, the chancellors or the shadow chancellor of the yeah. other party are the two who are actually fighting it out in the House of Commons. Right. So they are uh, well for the Liberals. It's Gladstone. Right. Okay. William Gladstone. He's the chancellor. He's the one that's got the reform bill that he's trying to get through Parliament. And but the Prime Minister is meanwhile sitting in the Lords. <laughs> yeah, seeking this better. It's better, better work. But Gladstone is unable to get the cross-party support necessary, and uh, the bill is defeated. Gladstone's defeated. Gladstone's defeated. Victoria uh, goes off to Balmoral to avoid what she calls that stupid reform agitation. <laughs> She's fed up with the whole thing. Yeah. And uh, the vote was lost by 11. That's... They don't get the reform act through. I'd have thought that would have been devastating to Gladstone's career, but oh, I know for a fact it's not, but <laughs> yes, that's well, quite something. Well, I mean, you know, it's it's again, it's the difference with party politics in these stages that it wasn't the case that you know you'd lose an election and then you retire from politics for russell however whose raison d'etre really as prime minister second time around is this reform bill mm. this is really quite a fatal vote so he resigns right um and that is it for lord john russell goes into retirement and um you know lives a fairly long time and dies in 1878 happily or is yeah it? no i think it's fairly you know yeah decent, unlike palmerston decent old career Palmerston just no. went straight out as Melbourne, who Melbourne, the, yeah. uh, sad decline. So that is it for Lord John Russell. So presumably we've got another person to come in, a new Fresh breed of blood. life again, exactly. Who's it yeah. going to be? The Earl of Derby again, again. Yes, for the third time, Edward Smith Stanley, the 14th Earl of Derby, becomes Prime Minister. They say they really do keep coming around. I mean, the new Palmerston did, but <laughs> jeepers. So 1866, Derby forms his third government, another Conservative one, and this time they do something a little bit surprising. Mm-hmm. They introduce a Reform Act. What? Why do they... Hang on a minute, why, why is he Prime Minister? Derby... So Russell's resigned, as the Liberal government has had to resign, so Victoria so Liberal- calls on... Do the opposite number. So they haven't had another election, this yeah. is the other thing. They don't always go to an election, so he says, can you form a government? And if he says yes, even if there's a minority then he's allowed to form a government. If he'd said no, then they might have had a dissolution and gone to an election. So just because the previous chap resigned doesn't mean his deputy number steps up and they're still in Well, he, I guess the, he resigned the government. Oh, OK, right. Rather than just himself, yeah. personally. So uh, you're just electing the members of the House rather than electing a party in power? Yes. So, anyway, Derby comes in. Mm. Uh, in 1866. Derby's actually quite ill at this stage. He's really taking a back seat, so it's his Chancellor... Benjamin Disraeli, who's really leading things oh, in the Oh, we're seeing these chaps, yeah. Now, Disraeli had spearheaded the defeat of the Liberal Reform Act. Disraeli's concern was not so much that lots of people would have the vote and it'd be too much democracy, I rule of the people, the mob. Yeah. Disraeli's concern was that the bill that Gladstone was going to introduce would condemn the Tories to opposition. He thought they'll skew it in favour of their party and will be condemned to never form a government So you'd have again. more seats in um, sort of industrial areas where people are more likely mm. to vote for reform. So what Disraeli tries to do, he defeats the bill, gets all the Conservatives to defeat it, this awful, terrible, radical bill, and then in 1867 he introduces his own one. So that's actually not that surprising because it's just, it's just tweaking it to keep them satisfied. No. <laughs> what? Disraeli's one is far more radical than Gladstone's. Why? The reason that he does this is that he just thinks if we can do this, then the actual will vote for us, because we introduced the Second Reform Act. 
And because he's so desperate to get it done, he just accepts all these amendments from the Liberals. So the Liberals keep offering amendments to the bill, mm. and he just takes them. As long as Gladstone didn't suggest it, Israeli takes it. Wow. So this is the start of that rivalry between these two, then? Very much so. Brilliant. Once again, Victoria is persuaded by Derby this time that she needs to open the 1867 Parliament. Mm. Oh, unbelievable. After what Lord Derby has said of the importance which her ministers attached to the moral support which would be afforded to them, she will not hesitate, great, trying and painful as the exertion will be to her. But in doing so, the Queen must have it clearly understood that she is not to be expected to do it as a matter of course, year after year. <laughs> well, I mean, she is, though, isn't she? Well, no, well, she doesn't do it every year. No. However, they get the bill through. And what are these amendments, though? It is much more watered down or much more beefed up? Much more radical. Basically, it's a huge change, effectively enfranchises the working classes and the power of the public vote um, over the landed gentry, because that's all these new people. There's about a million new people this will add mm. to the franchise. As Darby said, it was something of a leap in the dark. Okay. And basically, he just wants to get the Reform Act through. So this parliament must be all over the place then. Conservatives now pushing through more and more liberal reform. <laughs> And a lot of them aren't very happy about this. But, of course, the Liberals are happy because it's more radical than Gladstone. So, so the Liberals vote for it and a lot of Conservatives don't. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. So he does But the Liberals had the majority in the first place, so... <laughs> yeah. Oh, weird. So in the vote. Um, Derby, however, as I said, was suffering from ill health and in 1868 he has to resign. Um, Darby's a funny one when we look back at his legacy. I mean, he dies in 1869, the next year, so he, right. doesn't, uh, he doesn't pop back again. Mm. He was the longest ever leader of the Conservative Party, 22 years. Really? That he was leader of the Conservatives. Is that just because we've had loads of Liberals in recently and all the time he's been the leader of the Conservatives? Yeah, he's been leader all the time. And he Prime Minister three times, but he was in office as Prime Minister for three years and 280 days. Weird. Three administrations, but barely yeah. one year per... And then between effort. that, great periods of Liberals... In which he's, in which he's still yeah. in power. You'd never have that today. <laughs> yes. Wow. Oh. Um, and Port Stanley and the Falkland Islands, named after him. So, he dies in 1868. New person needs to come in. Well, he does, they do. Will it actually be a new person? I don't think so, Graham. Benjamin Disraeli! It is a new person. Benjamin Disraeli in 1868 takes over as leader of the Conservative Party and Prime Minister. Now, I notice here, you don't have a little apostrophe after the D. Le well, it was less... Mm. He, he was Jewish with the Israeli, yeah. wasn't he? And so he faced discrimination and just took the apostrophe out. Yes. <laughs> mm. I mean, it's not the best camouflage. Well, no, but uh, little things. Yeah. Okay. So, Disraeli, a bit of background about him. He was born in 1804, and as you said, Jewish parents of uh, Portuguese descent. He himself is actually a Christian convert, so he's not Jewish in a religious sense. Mm, yeah. um, but nevertheless, criticisms of him, often anti-Semitic in nature, cartoons that were critical of him, would be... Who'd have thought cartoons are still, um, not only this time, but today, still well, quite still inflammatory? Thing, yeah. Yeah. Um, he was uh, an author... Before he became a prime minister, he incurred huge debts uh, running a newspaper, so he turned to writing, uh, including a political trilogy, a novel, Vi Vivian Gray, um, Sybil. Vivian Gray? Mm hmm. It was by Disraeli? Yes. By me. Did not know that. Is it famous, or are you thinking of a picture of I'm Dorian, Dorian Gray? Gray. <laughs> <laughs> Oscar Wilde. <laughs> that is definitely Oscar Wilde. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but nevertheless, they sell very well at the time. They're not really read now, I don't think. Mm. But nevertheless. Um, he's a very charming man. A sort of feline slipperiness. 
<laughs> Weird. <laughs> well, in a sort of, you know, it's that sort yeah. of charming sort yeah. of... Yeah, mm. very political, I suppose that, that would do well with very politics. Indeed. Yeah. Um, as he said at the time, Toryism is worn out and I cannot condescend to be a Whig. Mm. Uh, so in 1837, he was elected as a Conservative, as a Tory. <laughs> uh, he tried to secure a radical alliance between the Conservatives and Radicals, but uh, John Bright refused to sacrifice his principles in order to do that. Mm. And as he commented at the time, Disraeli seems unable to comprehend the morality of our political course. So he's looking for... The, he's quite Blairite in being quite... Mm. Looking for a third way and being quite slippery. Exactly, very, very much mm. in that sort of line. Um, 1841, he didn't get to be included in Peel's government. Um, so, as a result, he became one of Peel's most ardent critics, opposed the Maynooth Grant and Corn Law repeal. So when the party split, Disraeli went with Derby into this sort of more protectionist Conservative Party while Peel went off. Really? So he, he went... Even though he wasn't a Tory, he went for the hardest of hardline Tories when they split. Yeah. Victoria had mixed first impressions about him. Mm. First comes onto her radar in 1852 when he's Derby's Prime Minister, uh, Chancellor for the first time. Mr Disraeli, alias Dizzy, writes very curious reports to me of the House of Commons proceedings, much in the style of his books. He is a most singular, thoroughly Jewish-looking, a livid complexion, dark eyes and eyebrows and black ringlets. The expression is disagreeable, but I did not find him so to talk to. He has a bland manner, and his language is very flowery. Right, I mean, Vicky, <laughs> she doesn't like the look of him, but... On other, on closer inspection, he's all right. Yes, right. That's nice. However, as we, as I said, he is a charmer, mm. and he is able to charm Victoria. Mm-hmm. First off, in 1863, in the House of Commons, he pays a very fulsome tribute to Albert, the late That'll Albert. Do it. The Queen cannot resist from expressing personally to Mister Disraeli her deep gratification at the tribute he paid to her adored, beloved, and great husband. The perusal of it made her shed tears, but it was very soothing to her broken heart to see such true appreciation of that spotless and unequalled character. Do you think Disraeli was being honest? Because I mean, because people did <laughs> genuinely appreciate Albert's yeah. um, input, but he was doing it mostly for political ends, presumably. Yeah, I managed. He probably did appreciate Albert's virtues, but mm. he yeah yeah he knew what he was doing. Didn't he? Yeah, he knew her soft spot. Mm. So when he becomes Prime Minister in 1868, Victoria is uh, quite open to the idea, because obviously yeah. feels quite highly about yeah. him, as she says. Mr Disraeli has achieved his present high position entirely by his ability, his wonderful happy disposition, and the astounding way in which he carried through the Reform Bill, and I have nothing but praise for him. One thing which has for some time predisposed me in his favour is his great admiration for my beloved Albert, and his recognition of and respect for his great character. Yeah, I bang that same old drum. So he sowed a seed there. Yeah. knew what he was doing. Um, I think the present man will do very well, and will be particularly loyal and anxious to please me in every way. He is very peculiar, but very clever and sensible, and very conciliatory. Yeah, I mean, she always has to break that tiny little bar before, a <laughs> little bit of negative. He look, I mean, he still looks funny, <laughs> but he's good at his job. And he's very good at charming her. Mm. An important thing with Israeli is that he never forgets that Victoria is a woman as well as a monarch. Right. So he appeals to her as a personality rather than just as a position yeah. and as a state. He gives way to her on things that he doesn't really care about, such as church appointments, mm. but which he likes to really get her way. But he's able then to sway her 
and slightly more important matters of state. Mm. As he self, uh, says himself, I never deny, I never contradict, I sometimes forget. Everyone likes flattery, and when you come to royalty, you should lay it on with a trowel. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's good. Good, good voice. So, when he, becomes, <laughs> when he becomes Prime Minister, he says, yes, I have climbed to the top of the greasy pole. Oh, yeah, that's him. That's where it could I, I don't from. know if he's the first person. Oh, he right. says a lot of these things, which you think, oh, is that him? And he mm. just uses it in a good context. Okay. Because, like Peel, actually, he's not somebody who is a t- your typical Prime Minister. I mean, he's, you know, he's ethnically Jewish. Yeah, why was Peel different? Peel was from sort of business and industrialist, rather, oh, that's than, right. yep. rather than all these lords and earls yeah. and viscounts. Mm. He's just Benjamin Disraeli. Does he become a lord? Uh, yeah, he does become Lord Beaconsfield. That's right. I'll we'll continue yeah. to refer to him as Disraeli, yeah. however. Um, so, comes in 1868, uh, tries to get a few things done, abolishes public executions. Oh, jolly good, that's the happening, is it? Crikey. Still executions, obviously, but behind closed oh, yeah. doors. Oh, yeah. oh, yeah, just, you know... Yeah. Decency. Yeah. Uh, looked to establish a Catholic university in Dublin, but this was wrecked when Gladstone then tried to get amendments to disestablish the entire Irish church, which mm. yeah. brought the whole thing down. Uh, in Abyssinia, uh, the Ethiopian emperor, Tuidros II, I may not have pronounced that correctly, uh, imprisoned some missionaries in the Magdala Fortress. So Disraeli sent a huge force over to deal with it, 13,000 soldiers and 40,000 animals, which included elephants. Wow. <laughs> wow! Yes. Why? Like, why was he sending the zoo? Um, I guess because they trekked over mountains and all sorts He's of things. Well, yeah, okay, exactly. Yeah. It is a bit of a Hannibal. Uh, won the battle and looted Magdala. Mm. Jolly good. Um, Victoria still, despite being charmed, she isn't a complete pushover to Disraeli. So, you remember last time you were asking about whether there was a royal residence in yeah. Ireland? Disraeli suggests this as might be a good idea. Victoria said no. Um, it disagreed with his suggestion for the new Archbishop of Canterbury and there's a nice thing where there's a, a sort of a succession of letters between the two of them and basically Victoria's tone is always thank you for your long letter, give me all your reasons nevertheless I feel that my suggestion would be better <laughs> and sure enough stubborn Victoria he's yeah. the one that does get appointed so even though she's charmed mm. but as we said, uh, Disraeli gives away on things he doesn't care about yeah. so who's the monkey and who's the organ grinder <laughs> um, anyway 1868, they come to an election in which uh, Disraeli obviously is thinking that having done the Reform Act, he's going to get the benefit, the Conservatives are going to get all the credit, and they're going to get a nice big majority. This was the Reform Act, the huge... Yes. Well, yeah, yeah. And as such, the Liberals win a 170-seat majority. Ah. Well, how's that? Why has that happened? Uh, I guess Disraeli's calculations were maybe a little bit too simplistic. Right. Who was the last Liberal Prime Minister? Last one was Lord John Russell, who of course... Died. Resigned. Well, he resigned and then oh, yeah. retired from politics. So it's going to be somebody new. Okay, I'm ready. William Gladstone. William Ewart Gladstone becomes Prime Minister for the William Liberals. what now? Ewart. Ewart. E W A R T. Why has that name not survived? <laughs> <laughs> um, born in 1809 in Liverpool, but of uh, Scottish ancestry. Unlike Disraeli, he's a very serious uh, sort of man, high church. Politically, changes dramatically over the course of his lifetime, but always has a sort of a moral and religious zeal, yeah. which is core to everything he does. Compass moves about a little bit, but nevertheless, that central thing that drives him. Right. That's normally coupled with quite a humorless personality, is that...? That would be fair to say. Right, OK. Unfair to say, generally, but fair with In him. In Baxter's okay. case, <laughs> yeah. that is fair to say. 
The elephant in the room mm. with Gladstone that we need to get straight to, of course, are the prostitutes. Oh, yeah, I mean, I'm... <coughs> Carry on. <laughs> uh, in the 1840s, he started walking the streets of London by himself to rescue and rehabilitate fallen women. Are, are your fingers in the air doing the little symbols? My fingers are not in the air. Um, he set up a church penitentiary for fallen women to help them get back on his feet. Wrote all of his women, the women's names uh, down in his, uh, his, <laughs> in his little black book. <laughs> Different ones for Palmerston. <laughs> uh, took them home sometimes, gave them some tea and gave them some tea. All right, and whatnot, and and continued thereafter. Even when he was prime minister, he yeah. was walking around the streets taking prostitutes home with him. I think we need to start one of those inquiries that are going on at the moment. Questions have been asked yeah. about this, and speculation has been made. Gladstone himself, in 1896, wrote a declaration. In uh, which he said, with reference to rumours which I believe were at one time afloat, I desire to record my solemn declaration and assurance that at no period of my life have I been guilty of the act which is known as that of infidelity to the marriage bed. <laughs> so he's saying... Nothing to do with me. Nothing to do with me. Yeah. Genuinely, probably, was just part of his moral crusade. But, uh, it, again, one of those where it would be difficult yeah. for a Prime Minister to do that now. I mean, but why not... Why, 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 why not the homeless? <laughs> still, okay, that's who he chose, that's fine. Uh, one of his other hobbies uh, was cutting down trees. That's weird. From 1858, he took up the hobby of tree felling. Fair enough. Any tree? Did he have a favourite? I think oaks he particularly yeah. liked, but uh, other ones as well. Um, he did replace them with new saplings. So right. he didn't just chop them all down. Did he use the firewood, or was this some really? This is just some. I think he just liked the sort of therapeutic. As Randolph uh, Churchill noted, just as in his politics, he likes to destroy things. Uh, have you ever tried to do that? I've not. It is impossible. <laughs> it's ridiculous. <laughs> Honestly, it's so hard. Uh, yeah. It is forming a slightly odd image of him, though, because we've got him walking around with these sort of fallen women. We've got cutting down trees. It's sort of turning into the lumberjack song or something. It's, yeah, it's a very funny image to the one I had of him. Before. He also owns lots and lots of books, ultimately a library of about 32,000, of which mm. he was thought to have read about 20,000. Really? So he's very intellectual, very serious, very high-minded, very zealous yeah. individual. Right. I don't know. And I don't know how we found the time with all this. <laughs> exactly. Reading, but... Um... Politically, he was first elected as a Conservative in 1832, and he was a high Tory. Right. I.e. reactionary, opposes everything. He opposes the 1832 Reform Act, he opposes factory legislation to improve quality of things there. That's nice of him. Even the abolition of slavery he wasn't really all that Ooh, keen on. Really? But where's his moral compass? Well, at the moment, it's... Uh, <laughs> pointing south. <laughs> pointing south. Yeah. So the Maynus Grant... Gladstone had argued in a book that the country shouldn't ever pay money to other churches because he believes in the Church of England. This is a Catholic body. We shouldn't be giving lots of money to it. Yeah. So Gladstone supports the bill, votes for the bill, and then resigns. Whoa. Because he wrote about it in a book. He thought it was the right thing to do, needed to be done, but he'd written about it in a book that he shouldn't do it, so he resigned. Oh. As Aberdeen said at the time, no one reads your book and those who do don't <laughs> understand it. And as Peel said, I really have great difficulty sometimes in exactly comprehending what he means. <laughs> as we'll see, Gladstone does rather baffle some of his colleagues mm. as their time goes on. Nevertheless, he is a Peelite, so after the Corn Law split, he follows Peel 
And then in 1850, after Peel's death, he is the leading Peelite in the House of Commons. Right, OK. So, he became Chancellor first under Aberdeen in 1852. So in 1853, he really came onto the scene with this um, really impressive budget, made a great speech, everyone very impressed by the speech itself and also the content of it. Resigned uh, when Aberdeen resigned, so he didn't serve under Palmerston. Because he didn't like Initially, Palmerston. Initially, he didn't really like right. Palmerston. However, 1859, he does join him as part of the new Liberal Party. Uh, inherited a deficit of five, about £5 million, which just seems a lot at mm. the time. Uh, but he refused to borrow to cover it. He believed in balancing the books. 1860, uh, his budget adopted a free trade principle. Right. And he generally believed that government is extravagant and wasteful. So he wanted to keep taxes low through peace and sort of scaling back what government's doing. So state should be minimum laissez-faire. That's now very associated with the right of politics. Mm. And that yeah. hasn't he formed the Liberals by now? Yeah, it? so this is the Liberal Party. This is Liberal ideology. Small state. But what he wants to do, of course, is to free people to be able to do things for themselves. Mm. But he's very popular. Mm. Known as the People's William. So he emancipated the press from taxes on knowledge. So there were paper taxes. So he gets rid of that. Free breakfast table is another thing he um, got. So this was abolishing duties on basic foodstuffs. Right. So like people would say for breakfast, but generally it's sort of the basic food that people eat. Right. So right. this is kind of liberal for the Gladstone. He's getting rid of these things which allow people to right. live yeah. and get about their lives. Mm. That's what he's doing. He's freeing them yeah. to live their lives. As we've covered, he has something of a rivalry with Disraeli. Yeah. All begins with the uh, Reform Act when Disraeli engineered the defeat of the bill that Gladstone was proposing, only to pass one which is much more radical than that which he had yeah. voted against. Yeah. Gladstone didn't like it. Very fiery exchanges between the two of them in the House of Commons debates. Uh, Gladstone comes to be known as the G.O.M., the Grand Old Man. Yeah. Or, as Disraeli puts it, God's only mistake. He <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, wished Disraeli was a king. He'd have made an incredible... Um, uh, made for an incredible... Bit of a Charles II. Charles II, yeah. Exactly, yeah. Um, unlike Disraeli, Gladstone completely unable to lay on the charm mm. with Victoria. Or, or come back with any other witticism. Anonymous person noted that, um, when I left the dining room after sitting next to Mr Gladstone, I thought he was the cleverest man in England. Mm. But after sitting next to Mr Disraeli, I thought I was the cleverest woman in England. Ah, oh, that's more effective. And I think we know which one Victoria mm. is going mm. to enjoy. Initially, Victoria doesn't mind him. First time, uh, when the times they meet, in 1862. Then saw Mr Gladstone for a while, who was very kind and feeling. We talked of the state of the country. He spoke with such unbounded admiration and appreciation of my beloved Albert. So, good start. Yeah. It, there's such clear um, <laughs> Tony Blair versus Gordon Brown yeah. images here. One just can't, can't work the charm. You imagine how clunky that exchange would have been. Mm. Albert was nice. <laughs> and that was it. He was just wondering yes. how to do it. When he first becomes Prime Minister in 1868, I saw Mr Gladstone. He was most cordial and kind in his manner, and nothing could be more satisfactory than the whole interview. However, nearly a year later, in 1869, Mr Gladstone left this morning. I cannot find him very agreeable, and he talks so much. Basically, something has changed. Yeah. Victoria is no longer fond of him. Mm. This is why. One of the things that he's bothered about, very much so throughout his career, is Ireland. He's bothered by... by Sorting out matters in Ireland. Right. Indeed, when he first receives his summons to be Prime Minister, he's at his mansion in Hawarden, uh, in Wales, and Evelyn Ashley, who was with him at the time, uh, observed 
Well, he did. He was cutting down trees at the time. Of course. I said nothing, but waited while the well-directed blows resounded in regular cadence. I thought it important to explain that he was doing the cutting down yeah. the trees for yeah, that true. sentence. After a few minutes, the blows ceased, and Mr. Gladstone, resting on the handle of his axe, looked up, and with deep earnestness in his voice and great intensity in his face, exclaimed, My mission is to pacify Ireland. He then resumed his task and never said another word till the tree was down. That's a brilliant image. Mm. I like that quote. Yeah. That's great. Ireland is part of the UK. It's run at Westminster. The established church in Ireland is Protestant, mm. even though everybody there is mostly Catholic and rural. And there's lots of unrest, nationalist sentiments, uh, violence, yeah. all sorts of things. So, Gladstone mm. is going to do something about it. Mm. He disestablishes the Irish church as in the Church of Ireland, which is Protestant. Um, tithes no longer have to be paid, if we recall that. That was when they had to give sort mm. of food and yeah. crops and all this sort of thing. Uh, Landlord and Tenant Act in 1870 attempted to protect Irish farmers from unfair treatment, um, so loaned them public money so they could buy their holdings, and limited the powers for them to be arbitrarily evicted. That's totally good. See why he's liberal. Yep. Made a bit of a decent start there. He also gets lots of other reforms. Plan to minimise public expenditure, as he said, through peace, trade and low taxation, and reform laws to let people act more freely. Mm. So, 1870, the Elementary Education Act, England's first adequate system of elementary schools mm. introduced, uh, requires children to attend school and establish school boards to provide education where there weren't voluntary schools set up. Right. Trade unions, in 1871, they outlawed picketing which is where people congregate outside of workplaces to strike and persuade others not mm, to do or so. Or intimidate others. Or intimidate yeah. others. So that's a bit less of a sort of reforming thing. But they do legalise trade unions, organisations for workers, for the first time. Oh, great. Hmm. Oh. Um, 1872, the Ballot Act. Secret ballots are established for the first time. Totally good. All that Perhaps sort of looking at me Yeah. 1872, the Licensing Act. This one was less popular. Restricts pub opening hours and regulated the content of beer. Yeah, that's so Gladstone. Led to rioting in some towns. <laughs> and uh, in 1874, the most uh, most pubs were operating as committee rooms for the Conservative Party. <laughs> really? Yes. Just, just to organise a way to yeah. get him out? Yeah. Johnny Good. And Victoria has turned against him. Was it the pubs? I'm not sure if it was the pubs, but generally they don't get on. Mm. One of the important things is that she's been queen since 1837. Mm. So we're now into the 1870s. She's pretty confident she knows what she's doing. Mm. But Gladstone is something of a lecturer. Yes, he I lectures. Yeah. She doesn't like this. As she says very famously, he speaks to me as if I were a public meeting. Yeah. Can you imagine that? Just getting on his high horse and hmm. disseminating. 1872, uh, she noted, Our government here did not get on very well. They have contrived to get so very unpopular. Mr Gladstone is a very dangerous minister and so wonderfully unsympathetic. Mm. He did, to be fair to him, do Victoria great service, but which irritated her even more, when her son, Bertie, was very, very ill and then made that recovery. And then Gladstone organised that um, oh, service yes. of Thanksgiving, yeah. whereby they did that carriage ride in public, went to St Paul's, thank God the son of yeah. the Queen is going to survive. Hugely popular after Victoria and Republicanism had all been going on because she hadn't been seen yeah. in the public light. Gladstone organises it in as amenable a way as he possibly mm. can. It goes really well. Republicanism pretty much killed off for the rest of the reign and Victoria's loved once more. 
Yeah. So, but she can't. But she can't see that he's. But he's, he's. She sees that he's cajoled her into it, so she yeah. holds a bit of a grudge about that as well. Yeah. So poor Gaston can't do anything right. <laughs> In 1874, there is a general election, and even though the Liberals get 189,000 votes more than the Conservatives, the Conservatives win more seats. Peculiarities of our election system, as in America also, you can get more votes but lose the election. And it's the first time that there's been a majority for the Conservatives since Peel. Do you think all of those minority governments that Derby struggled with, this is the majority for the Conservatives? Victoria's thrilled. Yeah. We have a large Conservative majority, and the change of ministry will take place very shortly. <laughs> Mr Gladstone has contrived to alienate and frighten the country. So Gladstone, he wasn't so popular after this right. administration. And he resigns, goes to Victoria, and then Victoria notes afterwards, We talked of the causes of the great defeat of the government in the elections. I could, of course, not tell him that it was greatly owing to his own unpopularity and to the want of confidence people had in him. Yeah. So, you know, quite nicely, she... Uh, she was just saying, and then when he left, she went, oh, oh, thank God. Exactly. Yeah. And she's also pleased because somebody else is going to be Prime Minister. Benjamin Disraeli, again. 1874, Disraeli's back. He's back. And this time he's got a majority. OK. And Victoria's thrilled to have him there. Disraeli addresses what he calls the condition of the people. So issues like housing, savings, labour relations, lots of social reforms. This is what Gladstone was all about, though. And this is where I'm going to surprise you. The Artisans and Labourers Dwellings Improvement Act gave local councils powers to destroy slum uh, slum buildings for sanitary reasons and then to replace them anew. Mm -hmm. So they're getting rid of all these really dodgy, horrible old buildings and building new ones Mm -hmm. for workers to live in. The Employers and Workmen Act, a uh, breach of contract by a worker, previously was treated as a criminal act, whereas oh, right. if an employer no. did it, it was just a civil crime. Yeah. So they redressed the balance so that in both cases is now equal under civil law. Mm. More rights for the workers. Conspiracy and Protection of Property Act amended the uh, conspiracy law in favour of trade unions and it legalised peaceful picketing, mm. which Gladstone had... Mm. Made illegal. Illegalised. <laughs> yes, thank you. As uh, an MP, Alexander Macdonald noted, the Conservative Party have done more for the working classes in five years than the Liberals have in 50. Mm. So you have all these huge social reforms really improving the lives of the working mm. man. It's Disraeli, it's the Conservatives doing it. Why is he doing this? This isn't going to help get him back into power because these people still can't vote, presumably. Uh, some of them can now, thanks yeah. to his, his reform yeah, act. Yeah. He's still trying to get them on board. As she said, because of the Liberals and their laissez-faire attitude, they believe the markets will right all the wrongs in the system. They just need to remove the barriers. That's mm. why they're not so social reformist. As Gladstone himself said, it is the individual mind and conscience, it is the individual character on which human happiness or misery depends. This is completely flipped on its head in my mind. So he is resolutely anti-socialist. Yeah, yeah. Even though he's the, this great Liberal Prime Minister. I mean, he'd be a Republican in, in the States. Yeah, in many ways, yeah. Huh. Completely opposite to what I'd imagined. Foreign policy, uh, Disraeli is perhaps a little less left-wing. Bought the Suez Canal. Bought? I mean, they did actually... Persuaded quite, yeah. um, Lord Rothschild to lend £4 million for the government mm. to purchase the canal. Four-fifths of the traffic was British. Mm. which is why they want to do it. And most importantly, it secures the route to India. Yeah. Um, in 1876, the Royal Titles Bill made Victoria the Empress of India. And that's just complete flattery, isn't it? Uh, well, it's, he had doubts privately about it, but Victoria loved it, so yeah. he went along with it. Gladstone voted against it, 
which again didn't endear him no, to uh, no. Victoria. It attracted some criticism at the time, but she was delighted. But Disraeli justified it on the fact that it sent out a signal that Britain was going to keep India. Because throughout this period, there's this concern about Russia and France and everybody else getting to threaten India. So it's a statement of intent that says, we are here to stay. Uh, but it's the Eastern question is the main trouble. Rivalry with Russia. We covered last time the Ottoman Empire, Turkey's in decline, Russia looking to benefit from the Eastern European territories, Disraeli's concerned that Britain and particularly India are going to be threatened as a result of Russian expansion. Yeah. Turkey, the Ottomans, commit atrocities in Bulgaria. Ah, yes. Yeah, right, OK, carry on, sorry. Massacres uh, against Christians in Bulgaria. In churches, wasn't it? They p- put people in churches and burn them. Uh, yeah, past that probably, yes. Mm. Lots and lots of people killed. Uh, but Christians, which obviously is going to raise a few heckles in Britain. Right. Disraeli doesn't really care all that much. <laughs> <laughs> because at the moment, Turkey are involved in a war against Russia. So yeah. he's backing Turkey. Yeah. And the inconvenience of Turkey massacring lots and lots of Christians in Bulgaria, nah, yeah. he dismisses it as mere coffeehouse babble. Ooh, that's a bit, a bit nasty. It's all exaggerated. Oh, I see. Somebody else, however, does take up the fight. Yeah, but I know who this is. Gladstone. <laughs> 1874, he went into a massive sulk mm. after his election defeat. He blamed uh, partly his colleagues for not working hard enough, but also he blamed the uh, a torrent of gin and beer um, for why people voted against him, because of the licensing act. He thought, all oh, these are moral, stupid workers. Yeah. <laughs> so... He renounced a year later the leadership of the party. So 1875, he's no longer leader of the Liberals. He's still an MP, but he's no longer leader. Mm. And he's just, you know, sulking. Yeah. However, he returned from the wilderness to launch a moral crusade against the Turkish action, and particularly Disraeli's inaction. Yeah. So, he releases a pamphlet, The Bulgarian Horrors and the Question of the East, which sells uh, 200,000 copies. We charge people for this. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Uh, 200,000 copies in a month. Oh, that is pretty impressive. Something of a sensation. uh, Disraeli dismisses it as contemptible, vindictive and ill-written, the product of an unprincipled maniac. If if there's anything that Gladstone is, though, it's principled. He is somewhat principled. He went on speaking tours across the country and whipped up a frenzy. There is not a criminal in a European jail. There is not a criminal in the South Sea Islands whose indignation would not rise and overboil at the recital of that which has been done and which may again spring up in another murderous harvest from the soil soaked and reeking with blood and in the air tainted with every imaginable deed of crime and shame. He's really laying it on the... He's laying it on pretty thick. Victoria doesn't like all of this grandstanding, criticises him as a half-madman, a mischief-maker, and a firebrand. She's really changed the tune in. And as a show of support for Disraeli, in 1877, she opens Parliament. Oh, good. And as we know, she doesn't like to do it, unless she's really asked. But this is all a sign that Disraeli and Gladstone, in their two different ways, very much brought her back into full queening. Yeah. Gladstone through the service and mm. destroying republicanism. Yeah. And Israeli through the charm, but also Gladstone because she hates what he's doing so much that she's like, no, I'm sorry, I'm not going to sit back anymore. Yeah, true, yeah. In front of my seat. This goes on, Disraeli doesn't do anything, but then tension, tensions really escalate with Russia. Russia, uh, Britain was remaining neutral in the yeah. uh, Russia-Turkey thing on the basis that the Suez was untouched, Egypt stayed neutral, and Constantinople was not invaded. 
However, Russia advanced into Adrianople, and which is then threatening Constantinople in Turkey. So they're getting towards mm. where they're not allowed to get towards. Disraeli sent the navy into the Dardanelles. Parliament voted six million pounds um, for the military in case they had to go off and do something. And there was a rumour that Russia had already got into Constantinople. And Victoria isn't happy about this. The Queen cannot enough express in the very strongest terms her extreme indignation at hearing that we cannot prevent the Russians from entering Constantinople. Again and again we have told the Russians that we would not stand for this. The Queen expects that we shall use force to drive them out. Pray do insist on action or the Russians will crow over us and our uncertain and weak policy. So Victoria is showing her mettle a little bit more there and encourages Disraeli to take a very firm line. And the public at large are also very concerned. Russia-phobia mm. spreads like wildfire, and people are really getting G'd up for war. So this is where we get the invention of jingoism, um, which comes from uh, the musical song, uh, which went, We don't want to fight, but by jingo if we do, we've got the ships, we've got the men, we've got the money too. Not too anymore. Indeed. <laughs> uh, doesn't like all of this. Is it Disraeli is looking for the weak side of the English people. Yeah, he's right there. Appealing to their baser instincts, yeah. indeed. However, Disraeli brings peace. What? Treaty of San Stefano, initially, signed between Russia and Turkey, brought the conflict to an end, created the Principality of Bulgaria as an autonomous state, but Disraeli and others were alarmed at some of the deals which sort of extended Russia's sphere of influence yeah. in a way that they didn't like very much. So, Bismarck, the uh, leader of Germany... Uh, cause a meeting of all the great powers, so Britain, Russia, France, Turkey, Austria. Oh, Treaty of Berlin. Oh, uh, no, this is going to be Africa. Their aim is to stabilise the Balkans and to balance all the competing powers. So Germany and Austria are scared about pan-Slavism, so all the sort of Slavic countries becoming one kind of movement, and Britain and France are worried about Russia annexing all these ex-Ottoman uh, territories. So, 1878, we have the Congress of Berlin. Oh, that's the one, yeah. Uh, Disraeli had agreed with the Turks beforehand that Britain was allowed to occupy Cyprus after all of this, which was a very good stepping stone in this territory. So he takes a very hard line, threatens war on Russia if they don't comply, and sure enough, Bulgaria is recognised as an independent country, and peace is established on pretty good terms for Britain. Now this is interesting though, not just for this, but because we're, there, we're seeing Germany mm. starting to kick off. And this is Bismarck saying... I'm a world player to come and have this treaty over in Berlin. Mm. And Victoria is very pleased about all of this. The Queen sends these lines with some winds of flowers to welcome Lord Beaconsfield back in triumph. <laughs> um, and, you know, to be fair, the peace does last from 1878 to 1914, which is quite a long time. Mm. Although some of the lingering resentments and alliances that led to war in 1914 can be partly traced back to this sort of period. So this... this yeah, of course, because... It all kicked off in the Balkans. This is the world well, of 1914. Get... 1914 yeah. belongs to this sort of period, really, and not... Yeah, not the 20th century. Yeah. With the creation of Bulgaria, though, on the basis of this treaty, mm. you've got allegiances to Russia, which is why then you have the alliances yeah, that kick it exactly. off. exactly. Yeah. Okay. So long-term doesn't work out quite so well. No. <laughs> but for 30 or so years, yeah. they all stay at peace with each other. Uh, so that's all good, however... Coming to uh, 1880, he's been in office six years, so there's going to be another election. Mm. Gladstone goes off on a Midlothian campaign. 
So he's off in Scotland, another barnstorming tour, he gets a train, makes speeches all over the place, attracts huge crowds, attacks Disraeli's foreign policy, all these immoral wars, also against the Afghans and the Zulus and all sorts of things. I heard reference this recently on the news because our Chancellor, George Mm -hmm. Osborne, was recently in trouble for sitting in first class without a first class ticket. Uh And one of the commentators was saying, is this so bad? 120 years ago, a man had his own train. Yes. <laughs> I thought they were talking about Disraeli, though, but presumably... Gladstone. Gladstone had one as well. Oh, right. mm. um, so, the 1880 election, Disraeli, effectively, has got a sort of a Palmerston-type approach with his sort of big patriotic yeah. uh, foreign policy and in invading countries. He says that his approach was as selfish as patriotism. However, Gladstone is very good at whipping up... He is. ...a moral frenzy yeah. and a crusade. He wins hearts and minds... In 1880, Disraeli is defeated. Okay, so who have we got? Well, before then, sadly, a year later in 1881, uh, Disraeli suffering declining health, fatal uh, bout of bronchitis, and he dies. Well, tell them we're going to see loads of him. No more Disraeli, he dies in 1881. Oh, that's quite sad. It's quite sad. Um, He was offered, I think we've mentioned this before, but he was offered a visit from Victoria before he died, to which he said, no, it is better not. She would only ask me to take a message to Albert. (laughs) <laughs> I've definitely heard that that's brilliant yeah um, Victoria's devastated though because she loved Disraeli mm. uh, she said I cannot write in the third person at this terrible moment when I can scarcely see for my falling tears the loss is so overwhelming Again. never had I so kind and devoted a minister I have lost so many dear and valued friends but none whose loss will be more keenly felt I'm sh- sure we've heard this before True, but she does really get on with Disraeli because Disraeli, he charms her, he flatters her, she everything that she wants. Mm. And instead, she's got to have somebody else. William Gladstone, again. This doesn't fill Victoria with no. a sense of excitement. Mm. The great alarm in the country is Mr Gladstone, the Queen perceives, and she will sooner abdicate than send for or have any communication with that half-mad firebrand who would soon ruin everything and be a dictator. She's not keen. No. I mean, it's not exciting, is it, the prospect of another Gladstone? And the other thing, of course, is that he had renounced the leadership of the party. So even though he's been doing all this tour, he's still not the leader. So uh, Victoria thinks that actually there's no real reason to uh, to actually have him back. It's either Lord uh, Hartington or Granville who have sort of taken over in the meantime. So, So there's an election where he stood as an independent then? No, he's a Liberal, but he's not the leader. Of right. the party. But the Liberals won. But the Liberals won. Mm. Entirely because he was <laughs> whipping up a crusade. But nevertheless, Victoria thinks, well, you know, I don't want him back. Mm. What the Queen is especially anxious to have impressed on Lord Hartington and Granville is firstly that Mr Gladstone she could have nothing to do with. She never could have the slightest particle of confidence in him. A most disagree- disagreeable person. Half crazy and so excited. Did the world know about her opinion of him? Yeah, pretty much. Yeah. Okay. Uh, however, the reality was, as Hartington Gramble explained, that Gladstone wouldn't serve under them and they couldn't have a stable government without him. Mm. So, really, it's no it's, choice. Yeah. Oh, God. Mr Gladstone, too, as Prime Minister, seems hardly possible to believe. I had felt so sure he could not return, and it is a bitter trial, for there is no more disagreeable minister to have to deal with. And he now knows that she feels like this. Oh, yes. To be fair, he briefly wins her favour by um, giving a very eloquent speech in praise of Disraeli after Disraeli died. 
mm. um, though it wasn't particularly heartfelt, as he claimed that uh, the thought of composing it brought on diarrhoea. <laughs> oh, dear. That's he awesome. really That's hates Disraeli. Yeah. Uh, in Ireland, again, 1881, passed the Peace Preservation Act, which suspended habeas corpus. Mm-hmm which is a bit of a hard hit. However, then the Land Act, he tried to get what's called the three Fs, which is uh, fair rent, fixity of tenure, and freedom to sell holdings. So he's, he's, um, before, rather than removing barriers to let people live, Mm. this one, he's... um, Well, it's still still barriers, you could argue. Yeah, I suppose so. Because they're kind of being repressed Mm. by all these unfair laws, and he's trying to remove them. So for the... But mind you, the two of them combined. They're wonderful things. Hmm. Married Women's Property Act in 1882. Married women given the same rights to buy, sell and own property as unmarried women. Unbelievable. So this is pretty much legally recognised as being individuals for the first time. Yeah. Electoral Reform. Gladstone does a bit of this. Corrupt and Legal, Illegal Practices Prevention Act in 1883. Criminalised attempting to bribe voters. Mm-hmm. And uh, limited electoral spending. And then we have a third Reform Act in 1884, which uh, gave counties the same franchise as boroughs added about six million more people to the franchise. Mm. So now, two out of three men in England and Wales can vote, three out of five in Scotland, and about one in two in Ireland. Uh, Charles Bradlaugh, another notable person, he was elected a Liberal but couldn't be seated because he was an atheist. Oh, right. And as such, he so wouldn't we... take the de- uh, vow... So we're recognising women here, but not all religion. Well, so, Gladstone fought to have him seated with uh, an affirmation of loyalty rather than swearing to God. Oh, that's, yeah, brilliant. Split the party a bit. Um, didn't happen initially, but he was seated in 1886 and the law was changed in 1888. Jolly good. However, he does struggle a little bit. Mm. Um, he refused to submit to Victoria's intolerable and inadmissible demand to be informed on confidential cabinet discussions. Victoria complained... With respect to Mr Gladstone, the Queen does feel she was always kept in the dark. Mr Gladstone, unlike previous Prime Ministers, mm. who she lists, <laughs> uh, never once has told her the different views of his colleagues. And she just really, really doesn't think he's up to the job. Mm. The mad passion of one half-crazy enthusiast is ruining the good of six years' peaceful, wise government, and I often wish I could retire quietly and let people work out their own policy and reap its fruits. So yeah. she's saying, I am so fed up with this right now. Yeah, undoing all of six years of Disraelis, that was... Yeah, six years yeah. of great Disraeli. Um, she's angered at the uh, lawlessness in Ireland, particularly in 1882, when there's what's called the Phoenix Park murders, uh, where the Chief Secretary of Ireland and the Permanent Undersecretary were assassinated uh, in Ireland, urged hard line of coercion. Uh, Glasson also suffered a bit of a breakdown, because from 1880 to 82, he was operating as both Prime Minister and Chancellor. Wow. So he was doing both jobs. Jeepers. Proved a little bit too much for yeah. him, so he had to bring in some help. But he's increasingly unable to work really in concert with his colleagues. It's just all things that are in his head have to come out and be done. He isn't really able to adapt to other people in the world yeah. quite as well yeah. anymore. So he can't delegate either, presumably. No. And he's just, he is the party Gladstone. Yeah. Mm. However much the rest of the party may want to yeah. get involved. Um, he also has a bit of a difficulty with foreign policy because he's opposed to all this stuff, and yet there is an empire. Yeah. So as he says himself, while we are opposed to imperialism, we are devoted to the empire. In other words, we're not going to invade anybody, but we're also not going to give anything back. Yeah. And so in Afghanistan, he ends the war, withdraws troops, 
which Victoria wasn't very happy about because she only found out about it for the first time when she was given a speech that she was going to read to open Parliament. Saying, I'm taking my troops back. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so she wasn't too chuffed about that. Uh, there was also in 1882 the Anglo-Egyptian War when there was a, rev- a revolt under Urabi, Colonel Urabi, which led to a riot in Alexandria and the massacre of some Europeans. Yeah. So, Navy bombarded Alexandria, but uh, this just led to fires and even more rioting. Yeah, understandably. Um, so Britain got their priorities sorted sent in a mission, secured the Suez Canal, completely captured, completely in British control, and then defeated Arabi at uh, Tel el-Kabir. So he's gone against his principles there. We've now got another little... He's got to defend the yeah. empire, so he's not going to give any of it away. Mm. So, so, however, Egypt? he doesn't get any credit for his foreign policy because he is still a bit reluctant in some areas, particularly for General Gordon of Khartoum. Ah, yes, this is a good one. Mohammed al-Mahdi in 1884 was a Muslim mystic. Uh, they called him the Mad Mahdi, didn't they? Mm, uh, from Sudan, rallied thousands of um, followers to free Egypt from foreign domination. Around 10,000 Egyptian soldiers killed wow. in this conflict. General Gordon from Britain was sent to report on evacuating the Egyptian garrisons. Now, he wanted to hold the capital of Sudan, Khartoum, but then he was besieged by al-Mahdi's supporters. But Gladstone rather prevaricated in sending reinforcements. Yeah. And Victoria wasn't too happy about this. In February she wrote, the Queen trembles for General Gordon's safety. If anything befalls him, the result will be awful. Still nothing's done. Mm -hmm. March. The Queen merely wished to cipher as follows to Mr Gladstone. I'm greatly distressed at the news about Gordon. If not only for humanity's sake, for the honour of the government and the nation, he must not be abandoned. How much power does she have here? Could she actually say, could she personally just send troops or she... No, no. Gladstone needs to do it. June, to be a sovereign and to be unable to prevent grievous mistakes is a very hard and ungrateful task. This government is the worst I've ever had to do with. They never listen to anything I say and commit grievous errors. Right, that's quite a that's quite a statement. Mm, though, as uh, point out there, she's she's, real, she's agreeing with it. I mean, she's, she's stuck. With it, she yeah. can't do anything about it. Eighteen eighty-five. Finally, um, General Wolsey was sent to relieve Gordon, but he arrived two days too late. Khartoum had already been taken and. Uh, Gordon had been killed, and his head put up on a. And this is where we see him. His name changes, isn't it? Gladstone gets his nickname reversed. Murderer of Gordon, mm. he becomes known. Public um, outpouring of grief. Victoria sent Gladstone that public rebuke with an uncoded telegram, which to deliver to him at a station by the station master, condemned him for not acting sooner. So she wanted the world to know that. Mm. Wow, statement. Uh, 1885, Gladstone, he's getting criticised for this, for neglecting the army. When the budget is defeated, he resigns. Mm. And uh, Victoria declines to shake his hand on really? departure. Oh dear. Mm. Um, and he is defeated. Conservatives win the 1885 election. Pass their judgement on him as well. They're not impressed by all of the Gordon stuff. Yeah. Queen, um, Queen wrote to Gladstone um, a little bit afterwards, saying, The Queen trusts Mr Gladstone is recovering from the hoarseness with which he has been troubled for so many months and takes this opportunity of expressing some hope that he will spare himself from speaking at public meetings for some time to come. <laughs> Saki. So Gladstone is out. Excellent. Conservatives are back and it's going to be somebody new. The Marquis of Salisbury. Robert Gascoigne Cecil, the third Marquess of Salisbury, becomes Prime Minister of the Conservatives in 1885. He 
as patrilineal descent from William and Robert Cecil, the chief advisers, remember, to Elizabeth I and oh, yeah. James yeah, I. Yeah. So he's direct oh, right. male line from them. Very proud of his roots. Lives at Hatfield House, which um, previous home of Elizabeth and then of the Cecil. Yeah. So he's still there. Um, he had opposed the Reform Act, of course. the Second Reform Act. Yeah. So in 1867, he became an expert in the minutiae of reform and had been, you know, playing along with Israeli voting against Gladstone. So he was a strong objector in Cabinet when Disraeli said, actually, we're going to do it ourselves and yeah. more. Yeah. Disraeli says that he is a very clever man who's made a very great mistake. <laughs> um, however, relations between the two of them improved later, and he serves as Secretary of State for India and then Foreign Secretary for Disraeli in the 1874-80 administration. Oh, right. Then when Disraeli dies, there's a bit of a leadership vacuum. Um, Salisbury's leader in the Lords, but he struggles with Northcutt in the House of Commons for who's actually... Top dog. Yeah. Ultimately, Salisbury wins that battle. 1884, he cooperates with Gladstone in the Third Reform Act. He feared that, again, left to its own devices, Liberals would introduce a bill which would ruin the Conservatives. So, cross-party meetings led to some agreement there. And then he becomes Prime Minister. And he is well-liked by Victoria. If for no other reason, of course, than that he's not Gladstone. Yeah. Um, she was particularly amused by his observation that um, everyone was very surprised that Gladstone a ma- had the air of a man who knew that he was always right and yet somehow could sit down and listen to sermons without rising to reply. He talked about laissez-faire, thought it was an admirable policy. However, he thought that building projects had led to the displacements of working people. Mm. So they'd done things and then it messed things up. So, thousands of families have only a single room to dwell in where they sleep and eat, multiply and die. It is difficult to exaggerate the misery with which such conditions of life must cause or the impulse they must give to vice. The depression of body and mind which they create is an almost insuperable obstacle to the action of any elevating or refining agency. So he introduces a housing of working classes bill. Local government board empowered to force local authorities to shut down unhealthy houses. Landlords personally liable for the health of their tenants and it's illegal for them to let property below elementary sanitary levels. Personally responsible for their health, that's a weird wording. In the sense of if the place that you give them to live is so bad that it makes them unhealthy, Mm. you are legally culpable for that. Right, okay. Ah, you can't give them a grotty slum full of disease. Mm. That's not acceptable. Yeah, quite right sort of paternal Toryism, mm. sort of looking after yeah. the workers to create a more happy and stable country. Right. He also has a little look at Ireland. And he decides Ireland is irreconcilable to English rule, concessions will only make things worse, and self-government isn't really acceptable within the UK framework. However, the Conservatives came to power by defeating the Liberals, but they needed the help of the Irish MPs that sat mm. in Parliament. Um, so... Salisbury actually renounced coercion and started thinking of different approaches. Secret negotiations led to the Irish MP supporting the Conservatives in the 1885 election. So, they're starting to think about home rule, i.e. Ireland actually having some self-government. Right, this is the birth of that. What year is this? This is 1885. Gladstone makes an approach to Salisbury about whether the Liberal support could help get the bill through, solve Mm. the Irish problem. Mm. However, he then declares for it publicly a few days later. Right. So, uh, Salisbury uh, says that the hypocrisy of the man makes him sick. And Salisbury decided that there were lots of precedents in recent history for Tories introducing reforms that the Liberals vote for. So we had Catholic Emancipation in 1829, uh, Corn Law Repeal in 1846, the Second Reform Act yeah. in 1867. Conservatives introduced it. It was the Liberal votes that got it through, and the Conservatives 
are unpopular as a result. They don't get the credit and the party is split. Yeah. So Salisbury thinks, I don't really want to do that again. So he resigns and lets Gladstone sort it all out for himself. Gladstone's still around. Oh, yes. Are you joking? William Gladstone, again, again. Yes, again, Gladstone is the Prime Minister. The thing here was that in 1885, there was a general election where the Liberals actually had the highest number of seats, but mm. they didn't have a majority. So, and there were 86 Irish Parliamentary Party MPs. They held the balance of power, and because initially Salisbury was quite positive, they gave him their support. But now, it's all changed, they think we'll back the Liberals. The IPP, as they're known, sort of first modern political party in the way, they've got a strict party whip to ensure block voting. Mm. So they're quite a cohesive bunch. And they're led by Charles Stuart Parnell. He campaigned on land uh, reform and home rule, won lots of popularity in Britain when he condemned the Phoenix Park murders. Yeah. In 1882, they thought, ah, he's a respectful sort of Mm. Irishman to do business (laughs) with. Uh, He was described by Gladstone as the most remarkable person he ever met. Ooh. By future Liberal Prime Minister Asquith as one of the three or four greatest men of the century, and by Haldane as the strongest man in the House of Commons for 150 years. He's not talking about physical strength, though, is he? No, he's not. Okay. <laughs> right. um, 1886, they transferred their allegiance. Gladstone becomes Prime Minister again. However, there was a bit of a delay before Victoria finally um, actually bit the bullet and really? asked she him to be Prime Minister. When they objected, the Queen said, The Queen does not the least care, but rather wishes it should be known that she has the greatest possible disinclination to take this half-crazy and really, in many ways, ridiculous old man. Yeah, he must be old now, isn't he? He, he really is, yes. He's uh, 1809, he was born, so this is 1886, he's Prime Minister. So 70, 77. Gladstone ruminated on the Act of Union for 1800 and decided that the whole thing was a calamity and couldn't ever be defended, so the only thing to do was to have home rule. Ireland governing Ireland. In home affairs, Britain's still kind of in control of foreign right. policy, but... Like a sort of dominion. Like a dominion. So uh, his son Herbert uh, flew, was what was called flew the Hawarden kite, i.e. he leaked to the press the fact that his father had converted to home rule. So, it was logical in many ways. It gets rid of the Irish Parliamentary Party MPs, which a lot of people would be quite happy about. Potential to rid the Liberal Party, the old Whig order, mm. modernise them a bit, and it gives them the moral cause and identity. Yeah. And also, nobody's really got any alternatives to what to do about Ireland. Okay. Uh, however, a lot of people in the party abhor the whole thing. Um, led by Hartington, whose brother was killed in 1882 in the Phoenix Park murder, um, and also Joseph Chamberlain, splits the party and they form a new group with sort of liberal unionists, i.e. the union between England and Ireland. Right. So they align themselves with Salisbury and the Conservatives. Right, Okay. Gladstone becomes completely obsessed with it, and this from now on is really his prime focus. He's unable to see reality, such as that huge amount of work would have to be done before the House of Lords would ever vote for this. They yeah, thought years ago he was chopping down a tree and said that's all he wanted to do was pacify Ireland. Yeah, but he hadn't thought that he'd do it like this right, okay. until relatively recently. Indeed, he only visited Ireland once, it wasn't that he particularly understood the country or yeah. anything like that. Um, and Victoria hates the idea of home rule as you'd expect. The Queen writes this with pain as she always wishes to be able to give her Prime Minister her full support, but it is impossible for her to do so when the union of the Empire is in danger of disintegration and serious disturbance. Mm. She doesn't want to lose Ireland. It's part of her, part of her pack. Yeah. And, indeed, Gladstone loses the vote 311 to 341, which included 93 Liberals that voted against it. And Victoria's very pleased about this. She'd actually passed on confidential documents to Salisbury, and they'd been 
in communication with each other, working out how they were going to help to ensure that Home Rule was defeated. God, really, she's really getting her oar in. Gladstone dissolves Parliament, and there is a massive victory for the Unionists, so the Conservatives and Liberal Unionists, massive majority. She must be pleased. She is pleased. Whatever Mr Gladstone's personal opinion may be as to the best means of promoting contentment in and restoring order to Ireland, the country has unequivocally decided against the plan and the new government will have to derive some other course in due time. She trusts that his sense of patriotism may make him feel that the kindest and wisest thing he can do for Ireland is to abstain from encouraging agitation by public speeches. <laughs> Again, Again, shut she up. Says, shut up. So... Gladstone is defeated and the Conservatives are back. The Marquis of Salisbury, again! So, Cecil's back. He acts pretty much as Prime Minister and Foreign Secretary in this period. A lot of his concern is with uh, foreign affairs. Rather loose leadership of the party. He actually upsets Victoria a little bit over a man called Dadabai Naroji. Right. So 1888, a man, Gainsford Bruce, won a by-election um, uh, but for a smaller majority than being held previously under Francis Duncan, to which Salisbury said, But then Colonel Duncan was opposed to a black man, and however great the progress of mankind has been, and however far we have advanced in overcoming prejudices, I doubt if we have yet got to the point where a British constituency would elect a black man to represent them. I am speaking roughly in Newton language in its colloquial sense, because I imagine the colour is not exactly black, but at all events, he was a man of another race. Well, he, I mean, he's sort of saying that he understands that it will happen, mm. but not now. Yeah. Um, the black man in question was Indian. Right. Oh, OK. <laughs> <laughs> and Salisbury was criticised directly by Victoria, as well as the Liberals, for implying that only white people could be MPs. Victoria, was he? Yeah, Victoria That's doesn't amazing. have any of this sort of racial prejudice at all, so she's not very happy about this. That's amazing. Salisbury defends himself. The people whom we have been fighting at Suakim and whom we have happily conquered are among the finest tribes in the world, and many of them are as black as my hat. Oh, oh God. Such candidatures are incongruous and unwise. The British House of Commons, with its traditions, is a machine too peculiar and too delicate to be managed by any but those who have been born within these isles. So, so he's not defining race there, he's just saying it's where you're born. So spoke Donald Trump. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> However, in 1892, Naroji was elected as an MP, the first mm. ever ethnic minority MP. Salisbury invited him to become governor of the Imperial Institute, which they accepted. Mm. So, you know, this is brilliant. Often in position. So that was and what nice. year was that? 1892. It's really surprisingly early. 1889, Naval Defence Act, an extra £20 million spending over the next four years, the biggest ever expansion in peacetime. Ten new battleships, 38 cruisers, 18 torpedo boats and four fast gunboats. Well, previously they kept the navy to be one third larger than their nearest rival, but now they're going to have the equivalent to the next two rivals combined. Yeah, mm. yeah. We also in this period have Jack the Ripper. Oh yeah, committing his uh, murders, his jolly murders. <laughs> oh, from your um, Victoria takes some even interest in this. 1888, she writes to Salisbury. This new ghastly murder shows the absolute necessity for some very decided action. All these courts must be lit, and our detectives improved. They are not what they should be. I remember hearing somewhere that they suspected Salisbury of being... Lots of people get suspected. Gladstone, yeah. of course, because he's roaming the streets finding prostitutes. So oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. 1892, there's a general election and the Conservatives win the most seats. OK. However, oh. the Liberals and the Irish Parliamentary Party have a combined majority. Salisbury doesn't resign straight away, but he's defeated in a vote of no confidence. Mm. So, Conservatives are out. And we have... 
William Gladstone again, again, again. For the fourth time, Gladstone becomes Prime Minister in 1892. It's a record fourth time, and also it's a record age for someone to become Prime Minister. He must be in his 80s. He's 82. Right. Mm. As Victoria notes, it is very trying and anxious to have to take as Prime Minister a man of 82 and a half who really seems no longer quite fitted to be at the head of a government and whose views and principles are somewhat dangerous. These are trying moments and it seems to me a defect in our much famed constitution to have to part with an admirable government like Lord Salisbury's for no question of any importance or any particular reason merely on account of the number of votes. <laughs> wow, Vicky. God, democracy. Now she's just saying, before she was annoyed, now she's going, really? <laughs> Seriously, is this happening? 1893, when he was nearing 84, Gladson sat down with Victoria's marquee, even though she'd merely bowed to him and not shaken his hand. Mm. So she noted somebody. Does he perhaps think that this is a public tent? Because he sat down before her? He sat, because he sat down at all. He's just, he can't be bothered now, now, he's so old, he's done it so many times. Well, there's seating etiquette around, Victoria yeah. has to ask you to sit, and she had only do it to people she liked, so Disraeli got to sit down, Tennyson, the poet, got to sit down with Gladstone, even in his 80s. No, doesn't get sit down. Anyway, <laughs> sod the protocol. I'm old. He introduces in 1893 another Home Rule Bill, right? Um, drafted in secret, like his first one was. Mm. He didn't involve anyone, even the Irish MPs. Don't get to see it. Really? Uh, and he's getting rather old now. So there's a 360,000 pound calculation error in one of his sums, which is hastily <laughs> correct. And it passes the House of Commons: 347 votes, 304. Wow. Even with a big sum error? No, well, once that's corrected, he gets it through. So then it goes to the House of Lords, where he hasn't done any preparation. Oh, as you said. But nevertheless, 419 to 41 vote against Home Rule. Doesn't get past the Lords. Gladstone considered holding an election campaign against the House of Lords, uh, but his colleagues persuaded him not to bother. Naval expenditure in 1894, the opposition called for expansion um, of expenditure. The cabinet were in favour, but Gladstone opposed to it, um, saying that he wouldn't break to pieces the continuous action of my political life, nor trample on the tradition received from every colleague who has ever been my teacher, i.e. he's for peace and retrenchment, he's not going to vote to expand the military. Yeah. So, he resigns. Uh. For the last time. I don't believe you. His final audience with Victoria, she didn't ask him who should be his successor, as was custom. Couldn't bring herself even to thank him for his long service or express any positive sentiments to him whatsoever. And it's a bit sad because despite Victoria's attitude, Gladstone's actually an arch-royalist. Yeah, I mean, he helped her. Because if he'd been against, if he'd been pro-Republican in the 1870s and launched one of those moral crusades, it could have been quite dangerous. Very, extremely dangerous. He had such support. But he didn't. Um, he even acceded to demands for certain ministers not being appointed, but he took the personal responsibility in explaining why he wasn't picking them, didn't say. He really liked her then. He really, well, he really supports the royal family. Yeah. 1895, the age of 85, he bequeathed £40,000 and all of his books to found a library in Hawarden. And apparently he hauled most of the 32,000 books there himself over a quarter of a mile using a wheelbarrow. Really? Hmm. Legend. Um, 1897 he met Victoria at Cannes and they shook hands which he thought was for the first time in 50 years in Cannes? they just happened to meet down in the south of France? Mm. they're on holiday? yeah not together no (laughs) No. Um, and he finally died in 1898 at the grand old age of 88 years old 
Having shaken her hand, finally. Having finally shaken her hand. His coffin was transported in the London Underground to a state funeral at Westminster Abbey, where the future Edward VII and George V acted as pallbearers. Victoria reflected on him, saying he was very clever and full of ideas for the bettering and advancement of the country, and always most loyal to me personally, and ready to do anything for the royal family. But alas, I am sure involuntarily, he did at times a good deal of harm. But nevertheless, Gladstone is dead, and there needs to be a new man at the helm of the Liberals. Okay. The Earl of Rosebery. Archibald Primrose, the fifth Earl of Rosebery, um, succeeds him as Prime Minister for the Liberals in 1894. He was born in 1847, so he's the f- um, he likes Salisbury. They're the only two who are actually younger than Victoria, of all these Prime Ministers. Oh, right. Um, he had three aims in life, to win the derby, to marry an heiress, and to become Prime Minister. Yeah, mine. He achieved all three. Uh, not so good for me. Um, he's not very keen to become Prime Minister. Um, in 1892... Um, when he becomes Foreign Secretary again under Gladstone, she noted. Next came Lord Rosebery, who looked low, observing that he thought they could have done better to leave him where he was. I said work would do him good, but he replied that he had no one to look after his children. Mm. His wife had died, sadly, oh. and he's rather depressed after that, and oh, so he doesn't really, really keen on mm. government anymore. So then, 1894, when he becomes Prime Minister, Lord Rosebery kissed hands on his appointment as Prime Minister. He said the task I had entrusted to him was very difficult, and not what he would have wished to undertake. I repeated that he was the only person in the government I considered suited to the post, and in whom I had absolute confidence, for which he thanked me. Oh, sweet. So, in government, he is Prime Minister, but it is a divided government. Harcourt and other more left-wing liberals aren't very pleased that this sort of aristocrat has become yeah, yeah, uh, Prime Minister. He and Harcourt... Um, who is his Chancellor, communicate more through intermediaries than in person. Um, He attempts to expand the fleet, but is defeated by party division. The House of Lords blocks um, all of his domestic programme, pretty much. He starts to look at the means of reforming the House of Lords, which upsets Victoria, which he describes as a talk of revolution. Mm. Interestingly for the Liberals, uh, Gladstone's last speech in in the House of Commons is to question whether the work of the House of Lords is not merely to modify, but to annihilate the whole work of the House of Commons. Mm. This is the start of the point that the Liberals start to see the Lords as a barrier to all the good reforms they're trying to do. Yeah, and there'd be a natural barrier to those kind of reforms. Exactly. Bear that in mind mm. for later. So when he loses the vote on army supplies and um, a recommendation of the reduction in war minister's salary, um, Henry Campbell Mannerman, for failing to supply sufficient cordite for the army, he decides to treat it as a vote of no confidence and resigns the government. Does he, he just wants out? He just wants out. Suffering yeah. insomnia. He's having an awful time. Well, poor guy. 1895 election, there is a landslide victory for the Conservatives which came as something of relief to Rosebery. Victoria said, I said I should be sorry to take leave of him, to which he replied it was an immense relief to give up <laughs> his office and the unfortunate inheritance of Mr Gladstone. <laughs> his uh, support for the Boer War and opposition to Home Rule prevents him joining the uh, later 1905 Liberal government, and he's a perennial critic of what came to be known as the new Liberal government, so much more what we call left-wing right. in their reforms. Uh, he eventually dies, however, in 1929. Really? That's amazing. I can't believe we're talking about 1929. Yeah. Um, after a long decline, after suffering a stroke in 1918, he died listening as his request to the Eton Boat Song and left an estate worth £1.5 million. Thought yeah. to be the richest Prime Minister in history. Really? But he is defeated. The Liberals are defeated. Conservatives are back. The Marquess of Salisbury again. Again! Yet another person, the third one, who gets to be Prime Minister for the third time under Queen Victoria. 
Walker. And I can tell you now, he is the last <laughs> under Victoria, 1895 to 1901. Mm. He's there for the duration. Foreign policy is his main thing again. Um, he pursued a policy of splendid isolation. Yeah. Where he's reluctant to enter into any permanent European alliances or commitments with the other great powers. Um, increased importance given to Britain's colonies. They're trying to stay out of European affairs, focus on the empire. Yeah. His main concern, in many ways, is Bismarck, who in 1871 had unified the sort of German and Prussian states into Germany. Yeah. Increasingly powerful, develops the German empire. He's known as the Iron Chancellor. Yeah. Bismarck, the original yeah. Iron Chancellor. So, concerned about him and the balance of power, and showing that no one state is strong enough to dominate, mainly Salisbury's able to maintain the balance, although once Wilhelm II becomes... Uh, the Kaiser. Oh, he's more interventionist, isn't he? Much more interventionist. He dismisses Bismarck, who predicted that the regime would fall after 20 years. Well, he was correct almost to the month, basically. Really? Mm. Wow. Mm. The big issue, however, is the Second Boer War. Mm. Uh, the Utilanders, who are mainly British, foreigners, come in in great number seeking gold. Gold mining. Um, in 1895, Britain introduces the Jameson Raid. They encourage the Utilanders to have an uprising against the Boers and the Transvaal, but it backfires. Britain want more Utilander rights, but the Boers think, God, this is just going to lead to us being overthrown, ultimately. Mm. So, in 1899, Chamberlain demands full voting rights and uh, for these Utilanders, and the South African public is given 48-hour notice to withdraw. Uh, doesn't happen, and war is declared between right. Britain and the yeah. Boers. First phase goes very badly for Britain. Preemptive Boer strikes besieged troops at Ladysmith, Mafeking, and Kimberley. And a series of victories at Colenso and uh, Magusfontein and Spinelop see that Britain's uh, advances are rather struggling, and it's not going very well. Victoria supports the war enthusiastically. She hates the Boers, but she's very troubled by these early setbacks. Takes great interest in the war. Sends a hundred thousand chocolate tins and some knitted garments to the troops from her own purse. Mm -hmm. Very good. And, uh, however, lots more British troops get sent out. They relieve the sieges. The Boers turn to guerrilla tactics, because they know they can't win in stretch fights. Improved, yeah. So uh, Kitchener, obviously, then employs the tactic of introducing and inventing concentration camps. Yes, a dark period. Not one of Britain's no. greatest legacies to the world. Around 26,000 women and children died of disease and malnutrition. That's dreadful, isn't it? It's not quite the same as the death camps under the Nazis. No. There are no ovens and no. things like that. But nevertheless, they are just people kept in horrific starvation and all mm. sorts of things. 1990, uh, 1902, the Boers did surrender. Right. So 1902, that's post-Victoria. That is post-Victoria. Mm. But ultimately, the Boers do surrender. Longest um, war under Victoria's reign, three months more than Crimea. The most expensive at £200 million. Pounds. Wow at that time and also wow. the, the bloodiest conflict between Waterloo and the Great War about 22,000 people um, in terms of the you know, soldiers yeah. thought to have died mainly of disease rather yeah, than as fighting, way in that but, thing, yeah. however an end is coming mm. Victoria is quite happy with uh, Salisbury as Prime Minister in 1896 she says every day I feel the blessing of a strong government in such safe and strong hands as yours mm -hmm. 1900 is what called the Khaki election after a series of British victories. They hold an election, mainly on the ticket of, yay for the Boer War, yeah. another Conservative landslide. And then 1901, as we know, Queen Victoria dies. OK, but we've still got Salisbury in power at that point. Salisbury is still in power. So those are all the Prime Ministers, pretty much all the events yeah. of Victoria's reign. We've got nothing left to do except review her. So who is your favourite Prime Minister? You've heard them all now. 
In the two episodes, who was the best? Probably Disraeli, because he, he's, he's the one-liner. Mm, you've got those good yeah, one-liners. Uh, uh, he's, he's Charles II. Well done, Disraeli, you win. Yeah. He gets the Rex Factor, the PM. Right, this yeah. is why we haven't done Prime Minister <laughs> yeah. Podcast, we still can't think of the pun. We can't think of a pun, there's no point. So that is it for the politics and for the events. Next time, we review Victoria, and we decide whether or not she has got, after all of this, the Rex Factor. Cheerio. See you next time.